for me, if you're going to, if and we're talking about food criticism here, you want to write about what is the essence of a place. You, I never believed in check mark journalism. You go in there and you tell me what the essence is. Like, you could talk all the crap you want on food, but have you tasted it? Until you taste a dish, you cannot talk trash on it. You can't. By definition, you cannot talk trash. Today on the LA Food Podcast, I'm your host, Lucas Servodio, and I've got a question for you, dear listener. What do Carl's Jr., the Santa Ana City Council, and Anthony Bourdain all have in common? That's right, they're all mentioned on today's episode. We are joined today by one of Southern California's most influential voices in food and culture of the last 25 years. It's Gustavo Arellano. Gustavo is a columnist for the Los Angeles Times, and he's also currently the namesake of KCRW and Gustavo's Great Tortilla Tournament, which culminates this October 8th at Smorgasburg in downtown L.A., He's a best-selling author, the longtime food critic of the storied OC Weekly, and his TV appearances include the likes of David Chang's Ugly Delicious, Chelsea Handler's Chelsea Lately, and naturally the aforementioned Tony Bourdain's No Reservations. Gustavo's resume is so extensive, it makes the Lord of the Rings look like an Instagram caption. He joins the pod today to tell us about his storied career from his days at the OC Weekly to his more recent endeavors with The Times and KCRW. His anecdotes are absolutely hilarious, and his takes are hotter than the chili peppers he apparently grows in his front yard. More than anything, I found Gustavo's whole approach to food wholly refreshing. The joy, curiosity, and excitement with which he approaches pretty much any topic is contagious, whether he's talking about the current state of food journalism or what distinguishes a good tortilla from a crappy one. And by the way, we get into both on this podcast. So don't go anywhere, dear listener, because without further ado, let's chow down. Guys, I am so excited because today we are joined by the legendary Gustavo Ariano, the columnist for the Los Angeles Times, and currently he's the namesake behind KCRW and Gustavo's Great Tortilla Tournament. Gustavo, how are you doing today? I am not eating tortillas today because I ate uh, spicy basil leftovers from really good Thai spot in Santana for the past two days. That's what I was going to, that's so funny you anticipated that because whenever I speak to somebody who works in food uh, or writes about food specifically, I love to start off by asking them what they had for lunch today. Is that what you had for lunch today? Yeah, like literally I just ate it. I was going, my wife, she made a spicy okra soup that I really want to taste and she has, she'll make all this wonderful food and then she doesn't like to eat leftovers usually. So, and I don't mind, I, I could eat the same meal for a full week like that. But then I'm like, well, you know, I really like the spicy basil from yesterday. Um, let me and I still have some leftover Thai hot sauce. So let me just get get it done with. And and then the best part, I was able to pick some chilies from my garden, like from a vol- volunteer plant that just popped up. So I was wow. wondering how they tasted. And oh, man, they're hot, but they're also sweet. So it's a hybrid. Uh, call it the Gustavo pepper, I guess. The Gustavo pepper. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> uh, you said you didn't use a tortilla today for lunch, but do you ever, you know, dabble with, you know, grabbing a tortilla and making yourself like a Thai taco or something if you have the right leftovers? I absolutely do, but I was kind of in a hurry and like 
And here's the other thing that that stopped me because not only do I have tortillas, I usually have tortillas, but I have a cheese from my parents' home state of Zacatecas. It, they call it queso de pata, stinky, stinky feet cheese. So it's like <laughs> kind of a cheddar. It's sharp, has an orange rind. My wife hates it. My siblings hate it, but I love it. So right now, if I'm going to be using a tortilla for anything, it's just going to be quesadilla. So I almost had one of my favorite lunches ever, like three double-sided corn tortillas made into a quesadilla, each, each of them into a quesadilla. But I'm like, no, let me get rid of the Thai basil first, and then I'll just eat like four straight days. I'll, I'll, I'll reduce that big cheese wheel into nothing and just get rid of all my tortillas that way. Wow, so you're like set for the week now. <laughs> I'm a simple man, Luca. Yeah. I'm a simple man. Yeah, I mean, that I wouldn't necessarily call that simple. Uh, I think uh, a lot of people who are just eating the tra- their Trader Joe's lunches at home right now probably consider themselves simple. You're calling us from Orange County now, is that right? Born and raised in Orange County, and God willing, I will stay here until I'm dead. Really? Okay, so you're OC for life. Um, you're kind of one of Orange County's like favorite sons in terms <laughs> of like you know, definitely in the food world. Let's start from the very beginning. You're born in Anaheim, right? Anacrime. Yep, Anacrime. Anacrime. And what were you like as a kid? I can't imagine. I've, I've, I've only ever known you as an adult journalist. I can't imagine Gustavo as a kid. What were your passions as a kid? Were you just going around trying different chili peppers and, you know, writing about them? Well, no. I never had any ambition to be a writer, even though all these decades later, I think about my teachers. So I was like, uh, I was a... A nerd, an underachieving nerd, though. As you could tell from my background, I love to read books. I never knew what I wanted to do with life, but I knew I wanted to read as much as possible. Um, I was not the best student. I was one of those students who would get A's in the test, but would always get C's and D's. And I was in honor classes as well. So my teachers always told my parents, you know, if only Gustavo really applied himself to his work. So I was very underachieving. And I was also, even though I was a nerd, I would always like talk back to my bullies, so to speak. So I, so I learned early on how to disarm people just with words because they would be so shocked that I would say something that they're like, uh, I was about to beat you up. Uh, I don't know what to do now. So I guess I won't beat <laughs> you up anymore. And then like my sisters remind me when I was really young, like in elementary school, uh, the biggest guy on campus. This is a kid who in second grade, he could have probably been a high school offensive lineman. He just announced to everyone, all right, I'm going to protect Gustavo. Anyone who wants to beat up Gustavo has to go through me. So he beat up more than a few people to do that. And I, to, I, I remember his name to this day. His name was Eddie Vallejo. I should probably try to find him on Facebook and just say thank you for all of that. But I don't know. So early on, I learned, uh, you know, I had a big mouth and I like to read. And I guess that made me perfect to be what I do today or what I've done with my entire career as a columnist. What caused Eddie Vallejo to become your protector? I do not know. I don't know if he took pity on me. I don't know if he liked the fact that I could say funny things. I don't know if he maybe respected like, okay, here's this nerd. And he, yeah, he's pitiful. But like, I see some, I, I see some fire in him that... I really like. So we were a total odd couple. And, you know, sadly, Eddie left because uh, I went to Thomas Jefferson. Th- th- those were in the years in Thomas Jefferson. And he left, I think, in the third grade. And, you know, in those days, if someone left, you just never contacted them again. And he's never tried to maybe he doesn't remember me, uh, which is fine. That's cool because he did what he needed to do with me. So Eddie Vallejo, wherever you are, thank you. I'm sure he's an avid listener of this podcast. Uh, do you remember any uh, zingers? 
Do you remember any zingers that you you, you threw out on the playground? I don't, I don't know because people sometimes will tell me. I know I'm jumping ahead, but like especially when I used to do a, a column that I was infamous for, ask a Mexican. People would say you should be a stand up. I'm like I'm not a stand up. I cannot tell a joke for the life of me. I'm very good in comebacks in terms of like saying stuff or I don't know. Like, so I would not know any zingers. I do, I, you know, going to food, I do remember that one of the ways that I got people to like me was during lunchtime, I would be the kid who would eat anything. And so my school was mostly Mexican. So, you know, there's not going to be anything weird. Like, okay, you, you get whatever the cafeteria food was, or you get uh, like whatever burritos people came from. But I remember like my friends, they would get like, say, uh, it was a like it would be like those glass bottles for apple juice, and then everyone would mix the drinks. Like, oh, okay, let's put in some milk. Let's put in some water. Let's put in some bread, like uh, the the crust of bread. Let's put in some beans and all that. Hey, Gustavo, do you want to drink it? Okay, why not? <laughs> and I never got grossed out by it. And so they like that. They're like, oh, Gustavo's kind of weird, but like, you know, who who would dare try to do something like that? And it was Gustavo who did it. So by third grade, that's when, like, even though I was nerd, people were like, all right, Gustavo, at least, like, we we could be entertained by him, you know? Like, he's, we're not just going to wail on him the way maybe we would with other nerds or the way other nerds were. So I had a use, I guess, which was, hey, Gustavo's willing to try anything. I think you just answered the question of why Eddie chose to protect you because he <laughs> saw you eating all this stuff and was like, Gustavo is crazy. I do not want to fuck with Gustavo. I am, <laughs> I am just going to protect him. I'm going to become his protector. Look, what what role did food play in your upbringing besides eating crazy shit at lunch? Well, look, if you're the child of Mexican immigrants like I am, food is life. I remember, you know, my mom and literally food was life. My mom was a tomato canner. So uh, for, for any of you who know Hunt's Ketchup, that was my mom's. Uh, that's where my mom worked at the old. This is before your time, Luca. But the old Hunt Weston tomato cannery in Fullerton was, was huge. Big, big place. So she was a she was a teamster like her. She was she had a union job. It didn't pay much, but it gave her gave us health benefits. Um, we lived right down the street from uh, orange juice factory. So we would get orange juice fresh off the line. Like, to, like this was back in the days when they would put orange juice in tin cans. And so we would get it before there was any label that just got pasteurized. It was still warm and we would drink it. So that explains my lifelong affinity to for orange juice. And even though my parents were poor, I had working class. They grew up super poor. By the time they got to the United States, they grew up working class. So my mom was a tomato canner. My dad was a truck driver and we lived in a granny flat literally a baseball throw away from a lumber yard. So not the best of neighborhoods, but we had nopales in the front yard. We had big avocado trees. So there was always fresh food around us. My mom, um, she, she was an adventurous chef in her own way as well. Like she would make your, you know, arroz, frijoles, nopales, menudo, pozole, like those traditional meals. But especially as the years went on, like she would do a great fettuccine. Like, was it the most authentic fettuccine? No, but it was my mom's fettuccine. Spaghetti. Uh, you know, chicken soup, caldo de, de camarón, so shrimp uh, soup on, and all of that stuff. So fresh food was always a part of us growing up. We didn't really go. The only place we would ever go out to eat, now we wouldn't even go out to eat to Mexican restaurants that much. I remember King Taco. Like I still re like I always tell people, I remember when taco, tacos used to cost 
four tacos for a buck and you would get free horchata. So that's how old I am. But we would go to that, like the mothership king, not the first king taco, but the mothership, the one off of third street off the 710. So I remember going there. I remember, uh, we would go to King Taco because taquerias really didn't exist in Orange County in the 80s. That wasn't until like maybe the late 80s. But the one place we would always go to eat was Carl's Jr. Because remember, Carl's Jr. Uh, was invented in Anaheim by Carl Karcher. Carl Karcher was a parishioner at St. Boniface in Anaheim, the Catholic church that we went to as well. And back then... Those cheeseburgers were really, really good. Like you would get a little small one. And if you were get if you were to get straight A's, but also like maybe if you're a student of the month, I can't remember. But this, you know, uh, Carl's Jr. would give you a gift certificate for a happy star, like a free happy star. So it was great. Hmm. It was great promotion. It, it like guaranteed a generation of future eaters. But hey, it was not anymore. Carl Jr. is trash now. I don't know if they do the same for Anaheim. Probably not because they're now in Nashville. But at least us growing up, Carl's was my go-to burger. And it was a good burger. I was going to ask because I've had Carl's Jr. in the last ooh, 15 <laughs> years or something like that. Like I don't, think I've, I don't think I've had it for 15 years. But I remember yeah. whenever when I had it back, you know, 2008 or something like that. I remember being thoroughly underwhelmed. What would you say that, <laughs> what, what were the biggest differences between Carl's back then and now? I mean, just the quality. Like I remember like I ended, I would have stopped eating Carl's maybe tw 20 years ago because my go-to once I got into college, I would get their three little cheeseburgers, like small little things, but get three of them. Each of them cost a buck and that would be a good meal. The pickle, was briny the mustard was strong the ketchup was sweet the meat was grilled perfectly the bun carl's was never really about the bun but it was a simple bun and like you weren't disgusted by it and i never really cared for their famous art oh there was a, and then they used to do a junior western bacon cheeseburger that was absolutely spectacular but you i during the pandemic my wife was desperate for food that wasn't ours so she's like just go to Carl's because, you know, you're always a, uh, you're always bombarded with the commercials. I'm like, honey, we shouldn't go to Carl's. Like, no, uh, I, I really want to taste this. So I go there. It was like dinner for two was like 20 some bucks. I can't remember what I ordered, but it was disgusting. And then afterwards, she's like, I'm sorry that I doubted you. People always doubt the food critic, at least in my family. People always <laughs> doubt my taste for food. It, it has been the story of my life with my friends, with my family. And so I mean, what ended up happening was, first of all, Carl Karcher lost control of Carl's. And he he had he had terrible reactionary politics. But when it came to community and it came to food, he really cared about these things. But, you know, it became once they bought Hardee's and then once they moved up to Carpinteria, then now, of course, Nashville, they just they just want to do food with a bunch of with a bunch of calories and they didn't care about the quality of it. And, you know, every couple of years. When it comes to sort of child childhood favorites of mine, I'll go back just to check: is it good? Or even a restaurant that I maybe I liked a long time ago. Like I just returned. Uh, there was one restaurant in Santana. Well, it used to be in Santana, but not, but originally was in Costa Mesa called Me Memphis Cafe. It was a pioneering restaurant in Orange County, and I had not been ever since the pandemic. It had been years, and so I, you know, I wanted to take out my friend. He lives nearby. I'm like, let's go to Memphis. Let let me just make sure that the food's great. And it was great. I had not been there like in, in a while, but the Manhattans were great. Their uh their Cobra burger, which is like a fried chicken cutlet with just their burger, it was absolutely awesome. So it made me happy. I mean, 
it wasn't as packed as it used to be, which makes me sad. But I'm like, all right, at least you folks are still making the food that you should be making. That is just such a part of my upbringing. It's always nice when that works out because I've had that experience. I grew up in in Europe, but I would come to the United States every summer or so. And growing up, I thought the way that Americans ate was only to eat at chain restaurants. I thought that was the most American thing you could do was to like check out the TGI Fridays, the Applebee's. And I felt like I was always playing catch up, trying to learn like the menus at these places, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, my favorite and our family's favorite was Outback Steakhouse. Oh my God. (laughs) The the, uh, memories I have of that blooming onion. Yeah. And I went back for the first time in probably, again, 15 years last year. I made my wife go with me for my birthday, and it was one of the saddest experiences of my Aww. life, you know, just because I was like, oh, I have this precious childhood memory, and it, this is it? This is all it is? Yeah, I can only imagine that that's uh, similar to the Carl's Jr. experience. Um, so what did you want to be when you were a kid? Um, did you want to be a columnist for the Los Angeles Times? No, no. I Again, I had no idea what I wanted to do through high school. I just knew that I wanted to read. And I read everything. I especially loved sports. So eventually, um, I got a subscription to both the Orange County Register and the Los Angeles Times. But I would only read the sports section. That's all I cared about. And then in high school, I saw Pulp Fiction on a bootleg tape. And then I'm like, I want to be a filmmaker. So I ended up going to Orange Coast College where I teach today in journalism uh, for film. Then I went to Chapman University before it has all the money, before I got all the money that it has now for film studies. So I thought I wanted to get into Hollywood. And then I realized that to make it into Hollywood, you'd have to do a lot of like vastly underpaid work. I mean, we're not even talking about the writer strike right now. I'm just talking about any anything. It was a really hard industry. And look, my parents were uh, we we own they owned their home, and so they were working class, but still they needed help. And by the time I got to Chapman, my mom had been laid off from her job, so I needed to make money fast. And but I still wanted to do something that I love, so I switched over to film studies. Because we took a tour of the Warner Brother archives, and I just fell in love because Warner Brother films, the old one, even to this day, there's always a quality to Warner Brother movies. They have a certain style. Um, so I'm like, okay, I could be a film scholar, a librarian. That'll, you know, I won't get rich off of it, but that'll pay the bills. But then by complete accident in 2000, I stumbled across the newspaper that launched my career, which was the OC Weekly. What do you mean? Like you start, like you tripped on it or you, you came across it at the library or what? Even better. I found it in a garbage can. Like <laughs> I was volunteering on a political campaign in 2000 for someone who ended up getting elected to Santa Ana City Council. It turned out to be terrible and now is a terrible judge, but that's a whole other conversation. Um, <laughs> but I, it was late at night. I was volunteering and I go throw something in the trash can, and there was a big newspaper that I had never heard of before called OC Weekly. And I always love to read publications I've never heard of, and I never heard of it. So I picked it up. It, it turned out it was its April Fool's issue. So the entire thing was like an issue of The Onion. So every single story was fake. I already knew what The Onion was. I, I don't even know how I encountered it, but I loved parody. I loved satire. So I'm reading this paper, and I'm like, oh, my God, this is such a funny fucking paper like they're really (laughs) doing these stories like what's going on and then to relate it to food it they did a column called five latinos we really like and all the people there were either 
bonafide white supremacists, self-hating Latinos, and one of them uh, was the Taco Bell Chihuahua dog. And <laughs> this was, of course, now we look back fondly on this uh, on, on this marketing scheme, but this was at a time where he was very controversial, where uh, people thought, especially Latino activists, is like, really, we get no representation except the talking chihuahua who says, yo quiero Taco Bell. Like, no, no, like, we're not going to do this. <laughs> so I wrote a fake, angry letter to the, to the newspaper because, or to OC Weekly, because I read this, I got it for what it was, which was satire. I thought it was brilliant, but I also knew that there was going to be a lot of self-serious people who were not who were going to think the story was real and so they were going to be angry and that's what happened so i wrote my letter saying how dare you do this and you didn't include this particular woman who was one of the authors of proposition 187 the notorious anti-immigrant uh, ballot initiative from 1994 so they published it and they published it next to um, the letter of a chicano studies professor from cal state fullerton who truly was upset so I thought, ah, ha, ha, I punked OC Weekly. So I reached out to the editor. He's like, no, we knew it was satire, but you wrote it well. I read it now. It's way over the top, way, way, way over the top. But since I was working on this campaign or volunteering on this campaign, I asked the editor. Uh, his name was Will, uh, is still Will Swain. He's obviously not at the OC Weekly because it no longer exists. But I asked him, how can I get you folks to cover a story? And he's, he explained to me the procedure to do so. And to make a super long story short, um, I eventually feed, fed them a lot of great story ideas. They asked me to start contributing to them. And one of the first contributions was food because I, I, published, a, I, I published a political piece. That was my very first one in November of 2000. Then the second time I came out, it was um, a cover story. So big feature about Lucha Libre in Anaheim. But it was also about a restaurant review of a Thai restaurant near my home, which is still there called Win Thai Cuisine in Anaheim. And they, the editor, he like, I, I learned that was my journalism education. I had no journalism education beforehand. I had written at the high school paper at Anaheim High, but they canceled it after three issues because they got mad at what I wrote just because the administration <laughs> was stupid. But again, that's a whole other conversation. But Something about my food writing really caught the eye of Will and the other people at the paper to the point where, remember, my first article was November of 2000 by the summer of 2000, uh, 2002. So basically a year and a half later, they had asked me to be their full-time, part-time food critic. So in other words, I was the food critic and I would write a column a week, but I was a part-time or so I was like freelance that way, which to me, I still can't believe. I remember I asked Will, what did you like about my food writing that would ask you, that would make you want me to be a food critic? And he was kind of like going back to elementary school. You're willing to try anything. This was, of course, the era of, oh, weird, exotic cuisine. So you're willing to try everything, but you do a very great job of showing us what you're eating instead of just telling us what you're eating. I love that. Do you remember? So this is 2001. I don't have my, my, uh, timeline in terms of like who was the food critic at the LA Times and the LA Weekly at the time but was was Jonathan Gold at the Times back then No he was at LA Week I think if memory serves me correct he might have still been at Gourmet Magazine mm -hmm. in that okay. early time but then he did come back of course to LA Weekly and 
that might have been I mean, because counterintelligence and I have my copy somewhere over here of counterintelligence or actually, no, it's, it, it's in the other room where that's my food section. That's where my food books are, although maybe it might be in L.A. now that I think of it. But I remember, you know, when you're a food writer. You're looking for other people because you don't know what the hell you're doing. So you're doing it. Yeah. But the, my main food um, writer, my first food writer influence was a guy that has been totally forgotten in the annals of L.A. food writing. A guy by the name of Stephen Lemons from uh, hmm. the newspa a newspaper that got canceled in 2002 called New Times L.A. So New Times L.A. was the rival to L.A. Weekly. And people hated it for its – they thought it was like its reactionary libertarian politics. But just to show you how – again, not now, of course, you could print whatever you want. But they had three food writers. They had their main food critic, whose name I cannot remember right now, but it was a woman. Then they had another woman who would do a column, but it was mostly her interviewing – some like it would depend on what she would interview. She died sadly in the newsroom, like like she died young, and I can't remember her. But you could find the name on laobserve.net because they wrote about that. They wrote about it, and so the first food critic would do like the quote unquote high end restaurants, sometimes quote unquote ethnic restaurants. Then this woman, she had her column, and then Stephen Lemons, he was all about, for lack of a better term, ethnic cuisine, and his big shtick. Was first of all, like they didn't have a picture of him, but they had a silhouette, like the Alfred Hitchcock silhouette. So he's a big guy. So they had like, okay, boom, boom, like, and he would always refer to himself as a fat guy, but he loved alliteration. So he would be like the the portly portmanteau of prandial possessiveness or something like that. And it was <laughs> such a gimmick, but he was just such a great writer. He was so brilliant. First of all, the restaurants he'd go to were all great. Um, the descriptions was great. And so that was the first person I really um, mirrored myself after. Then I think that's when Jonathan must have come in. Because I remember because I got a friend at LA Weekly, uh, Ben Quinones. He was a copy editor and sadly got laid off like early on, like 2006, after one of the many fiascos that you know, that was LA Weekly, but I don't think Jonathan was there. Lori Ochoa, his wife, was, and eventually she became the editor. She was definitely there. So maybe he, maybe he came in after she became the editor. And I think that was like 2003 or so. But yeah, so, but slowly but surely, I mean, who would have been the food writer at the register at the time? Because it wasn't Brad Johnson. He wouldn't come until way later. I think they had a rotating cast of them, but I don't know. I mean, I, I didn't think I'd be talking about Stephen Lemons here, but that's what makes you a great interviewer. I love to learn about that kind of stuff. I'm, I'm a huge food writing nerd. So I, I was just trying to figure out how it felt for you. Cause how old were you in 2000? You must've been, you were a kid, right? So like you, you're entering this like new profession and you're handed the title of food critic after a year and a half of, you know, experience in a job you didn't think you'd ever go into. What did that feel like? Did you have a little bit of like imposter syndrome going out to restaurants? And Never. I was 23 years old when I became the food critic. OC Weekly, I mean, look, like people, young people do not understand what alt-weeklies were uh, because, you know, they live in a world of social media. And I'm not saying this as a critical, you know, I'm, I'm not doing this to criticize or be the old man like, oh, you kids. But I mean, these were revolutionary publications that were writing stories that the mainstream media did not want to touch or were too privileged to touch or too uh, uh, clueless to touch. And so me coming in, I mean, just writing, first of all, I mean, 
it couldn't be imposter syndrome because I snuck into a place I wasn't supposed to. And this is what I always tell people who feel like they do or who who have imposter syndrome. It's like, look, the people who are your contemporaries, contemporaries or their haters. Yeah, they're wondering, like, how the hell did this person get in? But use that to your advantage because they're underestimating you. So do your thing and just make it happen. And that's exactly what I what I did. I mean, I remember and I, and I found out these stories all these years later, you know, I would write so much that my fellow staff writers would talk shit on me for writing so much because I was making them look <laughs> bad. And in my mind, I'm like, I don't have time for this. I have, you know, I want to write. I have stories. And I wasn't just writing about food. So it's always been a parallel. I've always been on multiple tracks. So I was covering hard news. I was doing investigations. I was doing music and all that. But like the one, like what I tell people, the thing I've done the longest professionally is write about foods. And so I just started learning. I just started, you know, I focused obviously for OC Weekly. I just focused on restaurants in Orange County. I wouldn't go to, we wouldn't cover Long Beach, although we would run two food reviews a week. We, and I would write almost b both of them. So I would do like my main restaurant review. And that's where I would do the newer restaurants. Uh, the, 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 the way I explain it to people, the restaurants with a budget to hire a PR person to say, hey, you can come to mine. And then I had a column that started in 2003 called This Hole in the Wall Life. And people assume, oh, you named it after This American Life. No, 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 no. I named it after this great sports movie called This Sporting Life from England from the 1960s. Because remember, there was a film the film scholar, the, the film studies nerd in me. And so yeah. that one was shorter. That was like the main one would have been like 800 to a thousand words. This hole in the wall life, it started off at 600 words. And then as the paper got smaller and smaller toward the end, it was just like 450 words. But that was just mom and pop places, not just like ethnic restaurants, but like burger stands, hot dog stands. Um, I once did a review of a young woman who would sell gelatina, so Mexican Jello, at a taco truck. So I wasn't reviewing the taco truck. I was specifically reviewing her gelatinas, which were absolutely amazing. And I and it was funny doing that parallel track because, like, on one hand, everyone hated me. Oh, you know, blah 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 <laughs> blah blah. But for the food, people knew who I was. So I remember I was talking to a council member. I had just done an investigation. There was a grand jury investigation based off of his crap. So I try to talk to him, and he's yelling at me and screaming at me, blah, 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 blah. And then he stops. He's like, you know what's the worst thing about you, Gustavo? I have to read you every week because I have to know where to go eat. <laughs> and I'm like, as long as I'm uh, – as long as I'm helping you, I guess, thanks. Sure. <laughs> Food really does bring everybody together. Uh, besides the Hilatina review, are there any, obviously, you know, you did these columns for a long time, so this may be an impossible question, but are there any me re reviews that really stick out that are really memorable in your mind that you're like, you know what? I'm really proud of that one. The the funniest one, the one that I teach sometimes to my journalist journalism students, or at least tell them like anything could be a story or review. I was at a place, Phu Hien Vuong, and I'm sure I mispronounced it, my apologies, but they claim to be the first place in Orange County to have ever sold pho. So this is a restaurant going back to 1979. And I, it's been remodeled in recent years, but the pho was great. And so I had gone there for a long time, but then one day the the um the the spokesperson for the district attorney's office at the time, Susan Kang Schroeder, she's like, Oh, this is a place where all the DAs and cops, but also criminals go to. I'm like, What? 
She's like, yeah. So she wanted to meet with me because she wanted to yell at me. And she was a great food or she, she's still around, of course, but she's not with the DA's office, but she's a great foodie. So she's like, yeah, let's go. I'm going to want to yell at you about stuff. I'm like, all right, let's go. So I'm eating and I, and I realized, you know what? I've never, I've never reviewed this restaurant. I'll do a review. So I went, I mean, I'd gone there a lot, so I already knew what I wanted to write, but here we are, we're talking. And then there's a clash. Someone threw down a table and plates, everything broke and all that, because it turned out a guy who was violating his parole was at the restaurant at the same time as a cop. The cop recognized him, goes up to him. The guy starts running and all that. So big, huge chaos. And then Susan doesn't even flinch. I'm like, what the hell just happened? <laughs> She's just eating her pho. Or her I, I would I, the the pho was great, but I like the boon better, like the vermicelli noodle salad. But like that one was just a classic, and that was the whole review. It's like it started off here. We're eating. Eh, this is what happened. You should you should still go there because it's absolutely amazing. So there was that one that was great in terms of reviews. What other ones that I like? Well, let me was, let me pause you yeah. right there for one moment. So I got to ask about that specific review. So a lot of people hear food reviews and they just think, okay, you got to check, hit the check marks, right? You got to do like ambiance, you know, food, uh, price and whatnot. How did you incorporate that story or that I interaction into your piece? And what I'm curious, what do you, not to like, you know, spoil the syllabus of your class, but <laughs> what do you teach the uh, students about that one? Well, for me, if you're going to, if, and we're talking about food criticism here, you want to write about what is the essence of a place. You, I never believed in check mark journalism. You go in there and you tell me what the essence is. Like, I know, like most, like, you know, for most restaurants, I would go there four or five times, but sometimes I would just base it off of just one interaction with it because it was so memorable. Um, and by then, I mean, that review, that was not until like 2007, 2008. So that was already years into it. And by then I had read other people who I thought were great writers. So Jonathan, of course, I knew his stuff by then. We were colleagues in a way when he was at LA Weekly. Robert Sietzema from The Village Voice, incredible writer about uh, just everything New York and just knew his stuff. I once went on a, a tortilla walk with him in Brooklyn, which was absolutely, uh, Brooklyn and Queens, which was absolutely incredible. And there was a guy... He wrote for the Bay Guardian in San Francisco, and his column was called Eat This. But it wasn't a food review per se. It was just literally like the diary of a guy. And here he's talking about stuff. And by the way, it was just at this restaurant. But he would get the essence of the restaurant. He uh, like and they were funny. They would continue. It was almost like a cereal, you know, like literally like one week. Tune in next week for blah, 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 blah. So that's what I realized. Like. I think a food review, if you're writing it, it has to tell you a story. Like, yeah, you want, you, you know, and, and by the way, like, I, especially for this hole in the wall life, it was exclusively positive food reviews. When I would do my quote unquote main food column, I would also mostly do positive food reviews because I was always of the opinion I'd rather tell you where to go eat than where not to go eat. And I reserved the right to take down people who I thought were tools, but that rarely, rarely happened. I'd rather, I'd rather just ignore them. So yeah, for any aspiring food writers, I would just say like, give me the essence of the place. You don't have to give me the, it, it might be the ambiance. It might, I, I also did a bar review column. 
like I would go to um uh it, it, it I didn't do them all. It was just a rotation of places, but that was called Dive Dive My Darling. Taylor Hamby was the main uh our main bar critic, but it was all uh dive bars and you know and especially i would focus on what i call paisa bars so mexican immigrant bars so like there are some great ones obviously in la but orange county there's so many great ones and i remember one like this was a type of place where they would have narco corridos and they would be flashing images of dead and mutilated bodies of the narco wars so and i said like hey like if you could stomach that and you could keep your mouth shut, this place makes really good drinks. But this <laughs> is the type of place that it is. And it's not, it, no, it no longer exists. I don't know why. But it's like you have to tell people what the story is. And this is obviously this is a nautical bar. And it was all for it was all rooting a specific cartel, by the way. I'm not going to name it, but like it was all there. But like I would have been a fool to have ignored that part of the story, you know, and it wasn't all about yeah. that because there was also other good stuff as well. But like, yeah, that's so uh, that's. That's a really good point. I have to ask about your famous column that you referenced earlier, which is Ask a Mexican. I need to know how this was ideated and and sort of like how you got, you know, how this even came about, how this came to be. Ask a Mexican was the idea of Will Swaim. And it started because he would always ask me these really dumb questions about Mexicans because the, you know, the alt weeklies are so lionized now, but they were a very, very, very white space. Very like I was the only person of color when I joined the paper and I was there for it wasn't until 2006 that we got another person of color and it was just ridiculous. So I was not I was only I was not only the token uh, Latino reporter. I was a token black reporter. I was a token Asian reporter. I seem to be the only reporter on staff who cared about covering communities of color. I definitely was the only one when it came to the food reviews who wouldn't exotify the cuisine and I would just take it for what it was. And so and so when he would ask me these questions about Mexicans, I'd tell him, like, you're kind of dumb for asking me these questions. But here, I'll answer them. And so one day he said, well, you know, you know, we need to fill up space. Because something fell through. So why don't you do a column, you know, where like make up a question about Mexicans and then you answer. It'll be and we would do joke columns like, hey, new column. But it was all a joke. It was a parody. So I thought it was going to be in that vein. The very first question, like, well, he asked me, like, just think of a question. So I thought, what's the stupidest question someone could ask me about Mexicans? And I immediately knew it, what it was because it was something that Will would ask me a lot. Why do Mexicans call white people gringos? And my response was that Mexicans don't call gringos gringos. Only gringos call gringos gringos. Mexicans call gringos gabachos. So I figured if it was going to be a satirical advice column, like the person answering kind of had to play the fool. But the bigger fool were people who were asking these questions in the first place. And it was supposed to be a joke, but it took on a life of its own. I mean, it turned into a best-selling book. The column ran from 2004 to 2017 when I left OC Weekly. Um, I answered, I mean, I still have in my archives, like so many, I got so many questions answered. So imagine two columns a week, every week, it turned into the best-selling book. Half of it was questions exclusive to the column. So that's, a, I'm not even going to do the math, but that's probably a thousand questions answered. And I still had, I still have a Microsoft Word document. I printed it out. Times New Roman 12 point single, uh, yeah, single space font of all the questions that I never got to. That's 236 pages of questions that I wow. never got to. So people ask me, and you know, people ask me, why do you think the column was so popular? 
And my response, or not popular, I'll say infamous, because a lot of people liked it. A lot of people did not like it. And I think what people wanted to read it for was what is Gustavo going to say next? Who is he going to knock down? And also, though, it was a like if it was a serious question and it was a question that involved history or research, I would do that. So like, you know, and a lot of that came with like food, like, you know, like so uh, in, my, in my Ask a Mexican book, there's an entire chapter devoted to food. I don't have the book on me right now, but I know I answered questions like, you know, what did the Aztecs call tortillas? And it, that would be Tlaxcai. You know, like the, the tortilla, I just wrote about this for KCRW, the tortilla itself, the original tortilla, the the dish known as a tortilla, it's still around, but like, it's basically an omelet and the Spaniards, they still, that's what they eat. That's, that is a tortilla. What we yeah. know as a Mexican or a Central American tortilla, that is to say a, a disc made of corn or flour. Well, the Aztecs didn't have uh, wheats. But they wouldn't make tortillas out of amaranth and, of course, most likely like corn. So that was that's what was called black sky. So something like that, like I would answer it straight. Yeah, a couple of jokes here and there, but I enjoyed doing it. It was, it was a lot of fun uh, while it lasted. It, it got me again. It got me fans. It got me detractors. But more than anything, it was red. Why did people hate it? Like who hated well, it? <laughs> every, well, everyone hated it. Everyone liked it. So the you know, the. From the left, people would say you're uh, perpetuating stereotypes, and how do you know that racists won't use your column to serve uh, as justification for their own racism? And my response, and I, it, look, intelligent minds can disagree. And of course, I cuss, and I would, you know, you read some of the older ones, they're a little bit uh, macho. I mean, again, because I was playing a character. Um, but my response to the idea that it would perpetuate racism was the next white supremacist that cites my column in their arguments advocating for white supremacy, they're going to be the first one because satire, not everyone gets satire. It's a very, very fine line. And I'm not saying that I succeeded all the time, but the one group of people who saw right through their satire, right through the satire and saw the column for what it was, which was a critique and attack against white supremacy and anti-Mexicanism, were white supremacists. They despised me because, again, separate tracks of my career, here I'm doing food, here I'm doing Ask a Mexican, but I'm also doing investigations into white supremacist groups in Orange County and hate groups, like covering hate groups. Oh my God, that was so much fun. But that's that's another conversation. <laughs> yeah, that's for the LA Hate podcast. Uh, no, actually, <laughs> sure. what, is the, what, is a, what is a question you got on your Ask a Mexican column where you were like, this is really dumb even for me? You know, <laughs> it made me laugh. I, I think the the silliest question someone ever asked, like, why do why do why are Mexicans laughing all the time? Like, and I saw that and I laughed like this wasn't a racist question. It was even stupid. It was an observation. But then I thought, you know what? That's absolutely true, because the question was like, I'll see men driving up the fields of central California in 100 degree heat and they're just laughing their asses off. And I'm like, look, uh, pe poor people, they have the best humor because the only way to be able to cope with the misery that is life is to laugh. You have to laugh at things. You have to make fun of the powers that be. You have to uh, make fun of your own friends, like make nicknames for each other and whatnot. And so that to me was the silliest one. But I mean, all the questions were dumb. Like, oh, what, like dumbest question. If we want to get to dumbest, what part of Me what part of illegal don't Mexicans understand? And my response was easy. It's like, oh, the legal part. Mexicans don't only speak Spanish and illegal is a word in English. Like stupid <laughs> question, stupid answer. 
or, you know, or the other one, like, why do Mexicans like to sell oranges on the side of freeways? My response to that was easy. What do you want them to sell? Steinway pianos? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, yeah. Stupid questions, stupid answers. I, I like that. Uh, what I, I also am really interested by the notion that you have all these ask a Mexican questions in the vault. Have you ever thought about like starting like, you know, doing it on Instagram, like live at like weekly, a question or you answer it or something, you make a reel no. or something. I'll be your social media consultant. I'll do it free of charge. <laughs> well, I, I do. I actually do something like that. Every Tuesday night at 945, I go on Instagram live, something called Grita Le Guti. That started during the pandemic. I've been doing that now almost three years where I will answer a question about anything. So not just about Mexicans, but anything. And it is just me from here, uh, which is called the Cosmo Cavern, me staring into my iPhone, just going. I mean, it's turned into its own thing. It's like public access television. It's a shit show. But I love it. I absolutely love doing it. Because I and I do that live because it keeps my, you know, it keeps me sharp. Like I have like to hold an audience. I have to be entertaining. I have to answer the questions. I have to be on in a way that and it's perfect for writing a column because same thing with the with writing at all. Like you cannot guarantee that the audience is going to stay with you all the way until the end, even if they paid for it, even if they say bought my book or anything, they're not going to stick with you. So ask a Mexican. Don't get me wrong. I'm very proud of it. Um, but when I left OC Weekly because uh, they owned the trademark to ask a Mexican, I could have continued doing a column answering people's questions about Mexicans. But I'm like, no, I'm always someone. The past is a past. What's what's ahead of me? What's next? And like I'll tell like I'll tell people they'll say, oh, Ask a Mexican was great. I miss it. You should bring it back. I'm like, why? I have a better column now with LA Times. A perfect segue into the next topic, which is sort of the end of your OC Weekly tenure. Now, I forget the timeline here, but were you there until the bitter end? No. OC Weekly shut down uh thanksgiving week 2019 i left the oc weekly friday the 13th october the 13th 2017 because the editor wanted me to lay off half the staff and i refused to i told them make me publisher i will make you whatever money we need if after six months i have not made you that money then you could fire me and i'll tell the world don't hate him for firing me we had a pack i didn't live up to it there you go. But nope, he didn't want to do that for his own reasons. I don't know what those reasons are. So I left the paper and, you know, onward and upward. That That's that's all that was there. And it sucks because OC Weekly was so pioneering and it was so important. And there's so little media to this day in Orange County, a region of three million people. Its voice has never been replicated and, and it never will. I mean, we're kind of and, and it sucks because, look, I have nothing against people, citizen journalists. I think that's important. I think people who are like have their own TikTok or Instagram or Twitter, even Facebook, that's important to to uh, do them doing what they do. But I still think we need a voice that takes the totality of Orange County. So like, OK, you're a political person. That's awesome. But I want to know about food. I want to know about culture. I want to know about history. I want to know about why this is the way that is. And we do not have that institutional voice anymore. And especially, especially because all those people have agendas. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with an agenda. But the OC Weekly, our only agenda was we're here to tell the truth with a capital T. And if that makes us fans, cool. And if that brings us haters, cool as well. Like we, we are beholden to nobody. And that's how I but still see journalism to this day. 
Well, that's what I was going to ask you, because is it possible to not be beholden to anybody in this day and age? Because, I mean, let's take the LA Weekly as an example, right? Which still is quote unquote alive, if I'm not mistaken. Like they're, they're, they send people, uh, you know, requests to pay $10,000 to be yeah. included in lists. Like, Mom, Brian, not, what's going on with that? Yeah, they're not, they're not what they used to be, right? So I, uh, and, and some would say that's because they're beholden to, making money into their their corporate overlords, right? And and even a publication like, you know, you the Los Angeles Times where you're employed. Yep, like yep. you it's a it's a business at the bottom of at the at the end of the day. And we've heard a lot in the past several years about, you know, the new publisher and all the moves that have been made to make it a more successful business. It do you think it's possible to run a paper like the OC Weekly in today's day and age? That's the great question. Could this paper have survived? I mean, I think it would have because we had the audience. We were telling the stories that needed to be told. The financial part of it was in shambles because of fools who were there running us into the ground. And ultimately, all the responsibility goes to the owner who didn't see in me like, hey, this is a guy who knows Orange County. This is a guy who knows who to call even to like to get money for us or all of that. And also, by the way, I believe in the ethics of keeping the newsroom away from um, from the people who make money. But there should be conversations like I would like people would say like, oh, can you write about this place? I'm like, I can't guarantee you anything, but I'll put it into consideration. And sometimes I would and sometimes I wouldn't. Now, with the L.A. Times, of course, that's, a you know, OC Weekly, we're 12 people. The entire staff editorial was 12 people. L.A. Times, I have like 400, 500 colleagues all across the newsroom. That is a far harder thing to wrestle but we still do believe in integrity. And then me personally, look, I love being at the LA Times. I will stay there as long as they'll have me. But if I were ever to be told, you can't do something because it might offend this person, I would have a serious problem with it. And I'm at the point in my career, like people will ask me, like, how do you do so much? You write this, you write for this person, that person, blah, blah, blah. And I tell them, because it's fun. The moment it's not fun anymore, I'm not going to do it. I, I, I will just, I'll help out my wife at her restaurant in Santana. I'll just, I'll just stick to that, but it has to be fun. And part of that fun though is ethics. Like I have to feel comfortable in doing a story. I have to be comfortable that my bosses are going to back me up and they, for every story that I've ever published, they have backed me up. Now, do they agree with all my ideas? No, but that's what the editor writer relationship is like. You're not going to, you're not going to win them all, you know? Yeah. So what happened when you left? So you told us what happened in 2017 when you left the OC Weekly. But once you were out, did you have your next step already planned? Or what, what, were, what was your menu of options like? Could I tell that story? I'll, I'll tell it to you. Um, I, and I've never shared this story publicly before, but this is a good one. So the LA Times, they had been trying to recruit me for a long time, for years. And I never wanted to leave because I, um, you know, I was committed to Orange County. I was 1000% committed to Orange County. I'm going to jump just a little bit ahead and say when I left OC Weekly, I had a, I already knew that the LA Times was going to allow me to be a weekly columnist for the opinion section, but on a freelance, you know, on a freelance case. So I knew there was something, but that was not going to start until like January or something. So I knew there was something there. But the editor at the time, Devon Maharaj, he had been making a hard push for me. 
like just a really, really hard push. And I'm like, nope, 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 nothing against you. And look, I've, I've always read the LA Times. Uh, so many great columnists there and so many great reporters. I had befriended some people at the LA Times. Like it was just, you know, it was cool. So it was nothing against the paper. It's just I wanted to be able to see weekly. But when I realized I'm not going to stay at the OC Weekly, they're going to push me out. That's when I'm like, okay, I, I better reach out to Davon and say, I'm ready to join the LA Times. So the morning I was going to text him, that's when it was announced that he was fired. Like in a big, yeah. he was like, they got rid of him, his uh, number two, all these people. And to tie it back to food, are you a fan of the television version of Fargo? Uh, yeah, I've seen it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So the season when they were in Minneapolis with Kernston Dunst and her husband, the guy who has those really spooky eyes. So he was a butcher. So the whole thing of like the, the, the story that was being told and spoiler, spoiler alert here, you know, he was saving up all this money to buy a butcher shop. So the day comes when he's about to get the key to the butcher shop and he shows up and it's on fire and yeah. you see it in his face. Like you could see his face. Fuck. I was planning <laughs> for all of this. This was my escape plan and it is ruined. So when I saw that Davon had been fired, I'm like, fuck, I no longer have a job. And that's when the times was in the doldrums. It was trunk. It was, I mean, they were getting this before the union too. So they were, it was going to be a, it was just going to be absolutely horrible. Thankfully, this is 2017, end of 2017. Thankfully, at the very end of 2018, I was able to join the Los Angeles Times. And I guess I, well, the funny thing with that, like, you know, I, I must have impressed my current bosses with my writing for them on the, um, on the opinion section. And I also took 2018 was my freelance year. So I freelance for everyone and anyone. And I remember my current, well, my current editor, Cindy Chang, but our uh, respective boss is Hector Becerra. So Hector would be like sending me these notes. Oh my God, that's such a great story. You should write it for the LA times. And I'm like, well, you guys got to hire me. And they were at a hiring freeze at the time. Then eventually with, when Dr. Patrick Soon Shang bought the paper, obviously they started to expand and that's how they brought me in. Got it. And, and they brought you in as a columnist, right? You don't, you're no. not, no. no. They brought me in originally as a features writer. So I joined the California section and I told them early on though, too, like, I want to write about whatever I want to write about. Like I want, if I want to write about a mu about music, I want to write for calendar. If I want to write about food, because Peter Meehan was there at the time, of course, when they were going to relaunch the food section, and he was a big fan of mine. So he's like, if, if you want, if I want to write about food, I want to write about food. If I want to do an international story, I want to have the ability to be able to pitch that. And to their credit, they allowed me to. So I was just a features writer. And then eventually in 2019, like I wrote, I did a podcast about the history of Proposition 187. For then it was the 25th anniversary. That, yeah, that was 2019. But during the pandemic, I I guess they must have been impressed by all the work that I had done. So I was a features writer for about a year and a half. And then the fall, yeah, September of um, 2020. So I've been a food, uh, a critic now for three years. That's when they made me a critic. And I, you know, and I told them like, what do you want me to write about? They're like, just keep doing what you do. But now if you want, like you could put in your opinions into that. So I'm like, all right, cool. Let's do it. I still, to this day, like some, like the one, one note that my bosses kind of give me a couple of times is like, Tell us more what you're thinking. Because, I, I mean, look, I'm always going to have my opinions, and I'll, I'll always give them freely. But I still, 
you know, especially being as a food critic, sometimes I put myself in, sometimes I wouldn't because I cared more about the story. It's like people don't care about me. People care about the stories that I bring and people care about like the writing. Sure. But they ultimately care about the story. So but it's been great. I I enjoy it. I don't know. I think you're you're selling yourself a little short there. I think people care about what you think, too. I mean, I remember I know that when something, you know, horrific happens in Los Angeles, like, for example, last year's uh, scandal at the city council, you know, one of the voices I look to for sort of like moral direction, even though the moral direction of that one was clear, is yours. You know, I I want to hear like, what does Gustavo think about this? And, you know, it's not murky usually. And you have a very like, you know, righteous sense of what the fuck should happen. (laughs) And I think that comes across in those situations. It's funny you said murky is not murky. Thank you, because no one has ever called me murky. They'll call me long winded, but murky is like, you don't make sense. I think with me, with my writing, you really immediately get a sense of how I feel and where the story is going. If I was murky, fuck, that'd be a problem at this point in my life. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, seriously. Do you ever still write for food at Daily Times? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, so I'll write for the food section. Daniel Hernandez has done a great job with it. Um. Uh, you know, it's hard for me to like focus on food because sometimes like my editor will say like, oh, you should make a column out of it. So but sometimes like so we had a, a listicle. We call them point of interest, but I still call them listicles. There's nothing wrong with listicle. Uh, we had a huge Disneyland package. And so because I'm the Anaheim mm. guy, they're like, you should write something about Disneyland. I'm like, I don't care for Disneyland. I really don't care for it. Don't make me write something about Disneyland. They're like, OK, well, how about a guide to places to eat outside of Disneyland? I'm like, I'm sold. So that was, and, but it's funny because I started off the whole package. Like, I do not like Disneyland. I do not like going there. I have no reason to. I am an anomaly. My entire family there, what do they call themselves? Key holders, whatever the hell they call yeah. themselves. But we call, I them, can tell we call you, them weird. We call them weirdos is what we call them. No, uh, Disnerds. Disnerds. They call them <laughs> Disnerds. That's what they call them. Um, so I was able to write for them. So I did that for uh, Daniel. I did another one about this crazy story that I've been following for years about a man named Greg Leon who owned a, a chain of uh, what we would call Tex-Mex restaurants. So your big combo plate, humongous margaritas, not exactly good food around Columbia, South Carolina, Carolina, the capital uh, of South Carolina. So this is a guy who became a millionaire, but kept getting in trouble with the law, but kept, you know, like he would not. They were not sending him to jail because, you know, he just knew who to talk to. And then one day, one Valentine's Day, he uh, goes to a parking lot, a dark parking lot, finds his wife with her lover and shoots the lover dead, calls 911 and says, I shot my wife's lover. And this was just so much scandal. I, I did the very last story that got published under the Peter Miam regime, the big one. Was this Mexico? I called it uh, the the Mexico combo plate or the Mexican combo plate murder mystery. So I was able to he this was I wrote this in 2020. The case goes back to 2017. It finally got heard and tried this past summer. And then after uh, Greg Leon gets convicted, he's facing 30 years to life and then he commits suicide. It is like Dateline incredible or whatever it is waiting to be written so when i wrote it like and it's a story all the way in south carolina but like when it comes to food now usually just because you know i I wrote a book taco usa so i just try to focus really more 
like as a writer on Mexican food and just the trends of Mexican food, like the whole Taco Tuesday debacle. I played a part in that. Um, the last food story that I wrote, I have one coming up. I'm superstitious, so I never share about what I'm writing in the future. What was the last food story that I wrote? I mean, I did a story about this a pioneering taqueria in Anaheim, Taco Boy, and how they had never had any problems, any holdups, any robberies or anything until last year. And they basically have had seven, including four in like three weeks. And so finally, they had to put in wrought uh, uh, iron bars in front. They had this beautiful storefront window. And I put it in like the story about that was like, dude, where's the respect? Not, not that anyone should be robbed, of course, but this is a pioneering taqueria. This is a neighborhood institution. People are ripping the like breaking in at four in the morning and like the owners in his seventies and they're just ripping their, their hair out. So that was definitely a column that got a lot of reaction to it. So, so yeah, so, so straightforward food journalism here and there, but writing about food. I mean, look, Southern California. Oh, I remember the last story I wrote about food is about, you know, the, the trend of assaulting street vendors. Like this is Mm. not anything new. So I took a, so when I did my, a 2012 book, Taco USA, How Mexican Food Conquered America. I, of course, got hundreds of newspaper clippings. So I keep them and I, I don't, I don't, I forget very little. So I remember it. I'm like, oh, a food vendor getting assaulted in Los Angeles. Let me go through the archives. Lo and behold, here's a story from 1893, August, so 140 years ago. Uh, a Tamale man was named Andrew, Civil War veteran in his 50s, probably. Um, he got assaulted near what's now Koreatown. Uh, two men go up to him with a gun. They steal his make, his earnings for the night, $2.75. Where have we heard this story before? Yeah, like a couple of weeks ago, there were six of them in one night. So food is always on my radar. I really don't write about food as much as I used to, obviously, but it's part of who we are in Los Angeles and Southern California. So, of course, I'm going to write about it. You kind of have the... I mean, if I say so myself, the dream job in journalism of being able to write <laughs> whatever do. you want, including about food. But like, I, I do want to sort of touch on this topic of what you think of food criticism in the city and not just Los Angeles, but in, in Orange County in general and sort of the greater Southern California region. Over the last five to 10 years, I would say what I've observed is just the rise of publications like The Infatuation and Eater, um, mm-hmm. and their really kind of incredible success to the point where Infatuation attracted, you know, uh, J.P. Morgan chases a buyer. And yeah. I've kind of seen, I think it's fair to say that we've kind of seen a lot of more traditional newsrooms try to follow suit in terms of style of, style of coverage, um, at least in terms of posting you know you said it yourself there's nothing wrong with a listicle but you wouldn't have found a listicle five years ago on the los angeles times or 10 years ago uh, say. yes am i wrong no it, no no you know what you you are wrong you know why because i start digging into some stories and i'll find listicles they weren't called they definitely didn't have the technology that you have now with maps and all that but like 10 years ago 15 years ago here's like seven like they wouldn't call it listicles. They'd say, here's where to get tortillas in Southern California. And they would have mm-hmm. like five or six different spots. But I will say this. I agree with you in the sense that now you're seeing an over-indexing of these guides 
in all publications, not just the LA Times, but LA Taco. Obviously, Eater LA, they've been doing it for a while, and I have nothing against them. I, the only thing I will have against a publication is doing something that, like, I don't know. I, for me, a, publica- a, a listicle should be one and done. So if you do, okay, 10 great, although, again, I'm contradicting myself. Eater always updates them, so I get it. But if I want to read a listicle, I want something unique. I want something that is not going to, like, something I've never read before. So LA Taco had a great one. Like, it was, what, eight pupusas? Four Salvadorans written mm-hmm. by a Salvadoran. And that was so, like, it, it was perfect because it was, like, very, very specific in its intentions. So I read it. And I and I had eaten a lot of them. So I was happy to see, like, oh, okay. So, like, my, my sense of what good Salvadoran food or at least pupusas are, it's not that far off. You know, of course, I could always learn more. So that's what I would say. But to only do listicles, I think that shorts what food writers can do and the stories that we're telling, not everything is going to be a listicle. I think you still need the profiles of the chefs of the restaurants and the time still does that, but I don't see other publications doing it as much. And then when it comes, because you asked about criticism specifically, restaurant criticism is a dying art form because to be Mm -hmm. a restaurant critic in the old days, well, you would get a credit card. You would be able to like expense everything. Like, most newspapers, sadly, now they do not have that. They cannot afford to do that. Um, and so, like, yes, the LA Times, we still have Bill Addison, of course, and the New York Times has Pete Wells, like the bigger publications. But like the Register, they just hired a guy, and I can't remember his name. He's got all, he did a really great story about Heritage Barbecue recently. But I think what newspapers are doing now are hiring food reporters, not mm-hmm. food critics, or they're making their food critics. Uh, also do food food reporting as well like uh, the california critic for the new york times you know like she is yeah. like her job like her, her and she's a great food writer i, I mean james beard ward winning of course and she's a great critic but she's also a great reporter so i think it's now a hybrid job that you have to you know that you have to be able to do and there's a good thing to that and there's also a bad thing to that is that it's not allowing the writers to sort of really think about what they're supposed to do, you know? Well, I really appreciate some of the lists that are, to your point, more like archives almost. Like, for example, the LA Times put out a good one, I think it was last year, about, I think, you would you call them like Tex-Mex restaurants or the more classic? Yeah, yeah it was a whole package on Tex-Mex, yeah. Or Cal-Mex, Cal- great- Cal-Mex, Cal-Mex. Cal-Mex, there you go. I mean, that was a great, you know, resource. It's It's like a definitive archive. Yeah. I don't know. I just, I feel, and you're right. You know, when you said these things have existed, I literally remember uh, trying to find a mention of this like taqueria here in Highland Park, which I yeah. is really good. And I wanted to see, has anyone ever covered this place? Like, it, like I, I, I uh, it's been around for, you know, 20, 25 years or something like that. And uh, lo and behold, I found it in what now would be called a listicle, but it was just a Jonathan Gold piece on where to find Longanisa in the city. Uh, mm. And it was, it was it was just prose, but he listed like seven or eight places in the article. He wouldn't have called it a list, right? So yeah, it's a good point. I, I hadn't have thought it quite, quite like that. I guess, you know, I, I maybe what I'm lamenting is what you're saying, that the, the death of the, the food critic in smaller markets too. It feels like those those jobs are few and far between. 
Because that has been replaced by the food influencer. Like they're the modern day food critics. And of course, there's a lot of problems with that model because you don't know when they're getting paid off to do so. And you just kind of have to assume like, oh no, they're doing it out of the goodness of their heart. But also look, if you're not, for me, like the good thing about being a food critic, if you can handle that, is that it's a job. It's a paying job and you're getting reimbursed. Now, if you could make a career out of that somehow, like, I don't know, get sponsors, but still remain editorially independent. That's cool. It's and I'm not going to name names, but we all know in Southern California, there's some places like you mentioned, LA. It's funny how. LA Weekly, and they should be, by the way, LA Weekly gets criticized for trying to shake down people by saying, hey, if you give me a thousand bucks, like we'll put you in this list. But we don't have that same hatred for the food influencer who goes to these mom and pops and say, hey, give me 500 bucks. I'll do a whole social media campaign for you and the place could suck or whatever. And then, uh, you know, uh, try to get at them if they don't. That's a, that's shakedown. That That is completely unethical. Um, and I will never stand for that. So you, like, cause people will tell me, like, they'll hit me up like, Hey, I'm a big fan. Can you write about me? I'm a food influencer. I'm like, so what's so special about you? Oh, well, like I read about restaurants and you know, I've written about some, there was a really cool guy, Joe, Joe Bautista. Uh, he goes on, on, uh, Instagram as man with an appetite and also La Puente eats. And he did a lot of stuff during the pandemic. Like just going to places like, Hey, this place is open. Hey, that place is open. I know for a fact, cause I've been able, you know, he's become my friend, but I, I wrote about him and then just, uh, he became my friend. Like he will not, he's not one of these people who shake down far from it. He'll call some of these people out. And then there's, you know, it gets, it gets absolutely crazy, but I'm all, I've never been, I mean, I'm so old that I remember when the next generation of food criticism was food bloggers and you had uh, um newspaper saying like, Oh, you can't trust a blogger. What's a blogger a blogger just types blah, blah, blah. I'm like, no, 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 no. You're just being afraid. You are not willing to adapt with the times. So you're going to be left behind. And look, a lot of those people were left behind. I never, <laughs> well, I don't do Instagram anymore because it hates the V10. Well, no, I do do Instagram, but I do it very, very sparingly now because they hate the Virgen de Guadalupe, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> the, uh, the blogger thing is interesting. I mean, yeah, some of the blogs you saw back in the day, like, you know, Bill Esparza started as a blogger, right, too. And, and uh you know, you read some of his early blogs. It's like reading, you know, Jeffrey Steingartner, one of those like, like, oh, like, you know, really long form food critics, right? Uh, and and it's hilarious to me that people ever thought that that was the same as food influencing. But you know, I I think people do get really pissed off about food influencers who go and take money yeah. and then complain when they maybe don't get something for free. There was a really famous example last year, I think, in St. Louis, where yeah. Uh, do you remember that? It was like a, a food influencer. Yeah, I, was, I went to a, I, and I think the food influencer was based here in Southern California or something yeah. like that. But yeah, I, I just don't, I mean, look, there's a lot of them out there and people know who they are, but there's not enough people calling out those folks. And those people, I mean, if you want to talk about someone getting canceled, someone trying to shake down people for, uh, uh, you know, mom and pop places uh, for reviews, that's someone who should definitely get canceled. Those things should happen more often. Yeah, but again, yeah, but, I, I, but I'm not, but I'm not gonna hate someone. I'm not gonna hate some youngster who's like shouting out their local taqueria, just doing it on their own, just because they're inspired to do so. I would never hate on that. It's like good for you. And if you're finding places and you're beating like the LA Times or yeah, if you're beating the LA Times or LA Talk or some other places, like even better for you. And frankly, me as a institution, I would say, 
all right, who's this person? How do we get them to start doing stuff for us? That's what I would, I mean, you want to continue, you want to continue that chain. I, I'm especially at the point of my career where I, I, I want to see who the next generation is. And if there's anything I could do to help the next generation in whatever I write, like I'm all for it. Yeah. Uh, I, speaking of writing though, I do want to touch on your books because you have quite a prolific list of books, but you've mentioned one book in particular, Taco USA. I want to know how do the ideas for these books come together? Do people come to you and are like, will you write a book on this? Or are you out there pitching and, and saying like, Hey, I would love to write a book about this particular topic. Ask a Mexican as again came as the idea of my former editor, and then we just I just pitched it as a book. My second book, Orange County: A Personal History, that was my own idea. That's from two thousand eight. That was a bomb, by the way. Barely sold anything. Ask a Mexican was a bestseller. OC: A Personal History was a complete bomb. Whatever, I know why I wrote it, uh, but that was my idea. Taco USA came. It came. It was the idea of my agent because. When Orange County got released in 2008, I went out with my uh, agent and my book editor at the time to a fancy restaurant in Midtown Manhattan. And I get there and I'm raving about this Haitian fried goat dish with pigeon peas and this like habanero vinegar sauce that I had eaten for lunch. And they got so impressed. You know, they didn't really know me as a food writer. They got so impressed by my enthusiasm for it that my agent's like, why don't you write a book about Mexican food? about the history. And at first I'm like, no, I, again, I try to do stuff that's never been done. So I assumed it had been done. Cause of course there's so many Mexican food cookbooks published by people in the United States. But I went back to my hotel and I went on Amazon trying to look for, uh, you know, books about Mexican food history in the United States. And they were very, very limited. Like there's this great one called recipe of memory by former LA times writer, Victor Valle, which is like a memory. Uh, it's a memoir of his family filled with uh, family recipes, which is an amazing book, but it didn't care about the United States at large. And then what was the other one? Like small little things here and there. So that's what I saw as an advantage. Like, okay, it's never been written before. Let me write it. So it came out in 2012. It wasn't a bestseller, but it sold well. But more importantly, it opened up so many, so many bridges to me to come out on No Reservations with Anthony Bourdain, to be with David Chang on a couple of his shows and his podcast, obviously. And still to this day, I get called up like, hey, you wrote a book about tacos. Here's this taco controversy. What do you what do you make about that? So it's always it's always great to put on my taco hat. Well, I I remember on the show Taco Chronicles on Netflix, specifically the episode about the tacos in the USA and hard shell tacos, right? Yeah. Um, and I, I learned a ton just by listening to you on that episode in terms of like, I'd always look down on that type of, uh, that type of food, uh, as like inauthentic, whatever that means. Right. But hearing it, hearing the historic context and whatnot has made me see it in a complete new light. And it gave me sort of the foundation to have a deep appreciation when the LA times came out with that Calmex list. I was like, Holy shit, now I can go to all these places like with this context and this knowledge and like really enjoy it for what it is, not expect it to be something else. I'm curious, is there something you learned while you were writing Taco USA that really blew your mind and still does to this day? Everything that you literally said. And I talk about it in the intro to Taco USA. When I started my research for it, I operated under two assumptions that Mexican food in the United States really didn't exist outside of the American Southwest until after 
uh, the passage of the 1965 Immigration Reform Act once once you started getting Mexicans traveling across the United States outside of the Southwest, and that there was such a thing as quote unquote authentic Mexican food. Because I was one of those haters. Oh, hard shell tacos, fuck that. Combo plates, gross. Blah blah blah. But as I traveled around the United States and I learned about all these traditions and all these people who consider themselves very much Mexican and consider their food like what we in Southern California might consider inauthentic, that for them was heritage and that was lineage and that was pride and culture. And then the most important thing, and this is what I tell people, okay, you could talk all the crap you want on food, but have you tasted it? Until you taste the dish, you cannot talk trash on it. You can't. By definition, you cannot talk trash. So going to some of these Tex-Mex palaces in San Antonio or Houston, it was incredible food. Did it taste like the food that my mom made? No. Was it incredible? Absolutely. Uh, do I go to El Cholo every single week? No. If I have a chance, will I go? Yes. Will I love it? Oh my God. You get a big old combo plate with their, uh, their uh, classic margarita and then their special flour tortillas whose recipe has not changed in a hundred years. It is a, it, it's a pilgrimage to something important in Southern California. So you have to accept these places for what they are. They don't have to be the best all the time, but it has to be an enjoyable, like you have to enjoy it. And if you come in with that, oh, and it's a great way to experience life, by the way, like come in with an open mind. You can accept things for what they are and not necessarily like them, but yes, you also have to be open to maybe possibly liking something that you've hated your entire life or that you just assumed. Like I, I, and I think it's a humbling experience, and that's what's so great about food writing. It's like you really have to challenge. You have to check your privilege all the time. You might come in with a certain assumption and then get blown away by it, and then at the end, really, if it's good, why not? Like, why not? Yeah. And you said something important is like, have you tasted it? Like it, if it tastes good, who, who gives a shit about all the other stuff too? Right. It's like, exactly. and, and that's what I thought of. I mean, you just mentioned those Tex-Mex palaces in San Antonio. I remember I've never been, but I've seen them on, I've seen them on TV and uh, <laughs> yeah, the way they fry up those tortillas and, and they get puffy and whatnot. Like, and there's, there's elements of that in other types of Mexican cuisine as well that it actually still happens in Mexico too. So it's like even though it, it's all it all comes from somewhere and it's all it all like you know contributes to this awesome tapestry, right? So I don't know it that whole experience for me taught me to you know really just get outside a little bit of this like uh, sort of like prison of authenticity, which I think is something that a yeah. lot of people who consider themselves foodies kind of live inside of sometimes. I love what the way you called the prison of authenticity. It is absolutely a prison. There is nothing authentic in this world. And thank God there's nothing authentic in this world. Now, is there culture? Yeah. Absolutely. Is there heritage? Absolutely. But if you're going to criticize someone because they're not making the food the way your grandma made it, then God bless you. <laughs> and that has been Ask a Mexican with Gustavo Ariano. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, so uh, I want I want to talk about your uh, other hat, which is KCRW, and specifically about this tortilla tournament you've got going on. Uh, we've heard about LA Tacos March Madness uh, or Taco Madness. We've talked about that yeah. on this podcast in the past. I want to hear about the tortilla tournament, what it is, how it came to be, and how it goes down. So. The tortilla tournament itself 
it's exactly what you might think of, a sports-style tournament. You have 64 tortillas, 32 corn, 32 flour. You break them up into four brackets of 16. You seed all of those uh, tortillas. So, like, the best tortilla is going to, like, say for this year, um, Tallulah's, which sadly closed from Santa Monica in the corn category, is up against, like, some gosh, mission tortilla, I think maybe everything bagel, I can't remember right now, but just a crappy, crappy tortilla. And every single week, you just go through the tournament. It's kind of like the FIFA World Cup finals, like uh, NCAA basketball. Uh, the only, and people ask how, what is the criteria for a tortilla to enter? Like, you basically have to be available in Southern California. And the only people that return are the 16 finalists from the previous year. Other than that, all the tortillas are completely brand new. And the purpose of it is really to celebrate first of all to ask people to eat better tortillas because you always can eat better tortillas you don't just have even if you shop at walmart so you can still get romero's tortillas that's a family-owned company that's been in santa fe springs since the 1960s and they make a great flour tortilla that's thick that's how i'm my favorite flour uh, my favorite flour tortillas for quesadillas are romero's tortillas and they're they're available at walmart and at stater brothers so like you don't always have to go to a tortilleria necessarily to find great tortillas but you do have to push yourself a little bit out of your comfort zone so uh you know if you go to kcrw.com slash tortilla you see all the all the opponents this year, you have tortilla essays. I have another column now called Ask a Tortilla Expert, where I answer people's questions about tortillas. All of this. We've been doing it now since 2018. And it started because my dad, because remember, he was a truck driver. So he would always go around and buy different tortillas or like di different from different mercados. He was around Wilmington and East LA and all that. So he'd get great carne asada. Best carne asada in SoCal is La Venadita out in Wilmington, uh, which also also makes corn tortillas, but they're whatever. And so one day he brings, he keeps bringing these corn tortillas from Miramar Tortilleria in East LA. They are thick corn so yellow that they're almost brown and it tastes just like masa such an incredible tortilla then one day i look at the logo and it just says since 1951 and i think to myself what is like what's the history of this tortilleria and then it's like a, a light turned on like there's all these tortillerias around southern california there's all these restaurants like of course you know the late great taco maria by carlos salgado wes garcia what he's doing or wes avila sorry ray garcia i'm mixing i'm, I'm mixing up my mexicans sorry mexicans um uh, you have, of course, Colonel of Truth. And there's just all this Sonora town. There's all these people doing great things with tortilla in Southern California. So I'm like, let's let's tell their stories. Let's go off and tell their stories. And since I'm a big sports fan, I thought, well, what's the best way to do this? Like, I can't have tortilla month. That's not fun enough. Let's just do a big sports tournament. And KCRW, God bless them souls, their souls, when I pitched it to them, only one person even knew what uh, NCAA uh, tournament was, like like Final Four. They had never heard of it before. But thankfully, I had a boss who um, was able to make it happen. And here we are all, like, not decades, but 2018, and we're all the way here in 2023. I, and so I saw and I thought, like, there's all this tortilla history 
here in Southern California. And you only know about it if you're in that neighborhood. So there's tortillerias in South LA. They're in Southgate. They're in Santana and San Juan Capistrano and the Coachella. The oldest tortilleria in Southern California is in Indio. Arriola's Tortilleria. They've been around for like, I think, now 93 years and you wouldn't expect it you think east la or whatever we've been making tortillas in southern california as long as it's been a part of mexico so i thought to myself why don't we create an effort to try to get all these like to highlight tortilla culture in southern california tell the stories and then i'm like well you know why don't we make a tournament out of it let's make these tortillas face off against each other and at first people and it's funny because every year it's always the same thing and of course people and so we've been doing it since 2018 it always starts off with like, huh, what a tortilla tournament? What are you talking about? And then it starts going. So first week, 64, then 32, then 16. Then it gets closer and closer. Our finale is October 8th at Smorgasburg. That's where we always have it. So we're going to have our four finalists, the Fuerte Four, and they're going to be making a tortillas there, and we're going to be doing live judging. And we get a bunch of people going in, and people totally enjoy it. And, of course, people then also hate Well, no, you know, and it's funny because every year I always start off on Instagram. I'll do a mosaic of, like, the beautiful packages of tortillas, like the different tortilla art. It's absolutely incredible. And then those people say, oh, well, why don't you include this one? I'm like, it was there in 2019. They lost in the second round. What about this place? Oh, yeah, they were really good. <laughs> and I and people, of course, as always, people always accuse you of favoritism. And so I tell people I play no favors. Again, it's my ethics. I told you my favorite corn tortilla is Miramar Tortilleria in East L.A. They have not been in the tournament since 2021. They lost in the second round. That was a tortilla tournament of champions. They lost. My favorite, uh, fl the flour tortilla that I use the most, again, for quesadillas exclusively, are these Romero's thick tortillas. They've never made into the Suave 16, although it's good. My favorite flour tortilla, period, is from Jimenez, Ra Jimenez Ranch Market in Santana, where they make these amazing, irregular, thick flour tortillas. has a baking powder on top of them. You have to order them in advance. They only make them Thursdays and Fridays. It is a magnificent tortilla. It's never made it into the Fuerte Four, and it's not even in the tournament. I don't even think they made it in last year. So, like, no favorites here. Like, the and the the um the competition is absolutely ruthless. But it's great because people get to talk about tortillas for about a month. And are these strictly tortillerias and manufacturers, or is it restaurants as well? Anyone, my the only criteria is the public has to be able to buy the tortillas somewhere. So like this year we had a place called Carolina Carolina Tortillas Estilo uh, Sonora. I think something like that. Like you could find it. Sadly, they lost in the first round, but it's a woman who makes uh, Sonora style flour tortillas. So big and super thin and buttery from her house in Long Beach. It's a, if you want some, you call up the phone number. That's what it is. Cause people will say like, and it's funny what people's assumptions of tortillas are because they're like, oh, you know, you're not doing the mom and pop places. Yeah, we do. We do them every year. We do restaurants. Oh, you're only doing, um, uh, you know, like the big name tortillerias. Well, the big name tortillerias almost always suck and they never really get past, you know, the first or second rounds. So, um, but we do it all. Again, the, the only criteria is like you have to be able to buy them. I want to expand the tournament across the entire United States, but it's taking a long ass time because there's a lot of tortillas. So, so far I we've bet. been able to go all the way down to San Diego. San Diego now has, I call it the San Diego Tortilla Invitational. So this year I did 
32 tortillas, 16 corn, 16 flour. And they're having a great run this year. You have, let's see, Tortilleria Lily for corn has made it into the Suave 16 because we like this week we just announced them. Uh, La Cuatro, Las Cuatro Milpas, legendary restaurant down in Barrio Logan, Santana. Their awesome flour tortillas made it. And then there's this really good supermarket, local supermarket in San Diego called Manolo Farmer's Market. They have awesome, slightly raw flour tortillas, but they've made it into the Suave 16 as well. So San Diego's tortilla culture, like watch out LA, like it's good stuff. How do you judge these tortillas? What is the judging process? Because <laughs> Taco Madness, they it's like a popular vote, right? Like people, and actually, don't get me started. That has its own problems. But uh, how does this one work? Like, is there a judging panel? And then when, if so, what are you looking for when you're having tortillas? So every year, we it's always the same judges. So it's me and Evan Kleiman of Good Food, Connie Alvarez, who's the head chingona at KCRW. And for the past couple of years, it's been Mona Holmes for, for Eater LA, but she couldn't do it this year. So I promoted my long and trusty tortilla scout, Sean Vukan, who's a uh, food writer. For, well, he's now in the Inland Empire, but he's from Orange County. And so we, I try to switch around. So last year I had flour, this year I had corn. And so the criteria for each is, I mean, first of all, is it good or is it not good? So every, like for a corn tortilla, and it's interesting because most people think, well, a tortillas are tortilla, right? But if you eat enough tortillas, you quickly realize what are the crappy ones, what are the good ones, and what are the great ones. And good and great, that's a thin line. But crappy tortillas, all bad tortillas, if you taste them, and if you really taste them, I mean, they're going to have a bitter aftertaste. And it's because of all the preservatives that they use. Maseca itself, just it's preservative. So it just has this bitter chemical aftertaste and now if all and th and I, I don't shame people by the way i shame i shame them if all your life you've only eaten guerrero tortillas which are the most popular brand of tortillas in the united states for mexicans and mission for non-mexican if that's all you've ever known i i don't blame you for wondering like what do you mean about a good tortilla but now that you've learned this knowledge go out and try them so the best corn tortillas the ones that win the the immediate thing if, if it has bitterness it's not going to win against a tortilla that does not have bitterness. And there's a lot of like great, if you only, a good corn tortilla should only be made of corn, water, and lime. And if you make it like the Miramar Tortilleria, it tastes like the earth. There's no bitterness at all. You kind of almost are gasping for breath because it's just so earthy. You're like you have to get water afterwards. That is just an amazing tortilla. And of course, Taco Maria, like some of like the smaller batch people make amazing flowers or corn. That's corn. For flour, you have a lot of different styles and also a lot of different uh, binding agents. Some people like A's, A's Barbecue, they're in the tournament. They had a really good flour tortilla, but sadly it lost in the second round to, um, I think they lost to Homestate, you know, a perennial uh, contender. You know, Homestate to make their tortillas, they, make, they use butter. A's mm. Barbecue, they use beef tallow which gives us this really interesting flavor. And I've had beef tallow tortillas, like, you know, just like with lard. Like if you use bad lard, you're going to taste it. If you use great lard, yeah. you're going to taste it. So same thing. So I've had beef tallow tortillas, and that's starting to become a trend, but I've had beef tallow tortillas where they were good. They were not good at all. But A's were really, really great. They just ran into, I mean, last year's uh, flower finalists. Like it's hard. And that, that's what I mean about the greatness of the tortilla tournament is like, it gets brutal. Like A's tortilla, if they were 
if they weren't so good, I would have ranked them uh, lower, and they would have had a better chance to advance in the tournament. But they were great, so I I ranked them number nine. They beat the number eight seed, which is Patty's Burritos out in Redlands, which makes great uh, flour tortillas. But then the number eight seed has to go up against the number one seed. That's hard. So sorry, A's. You make a great flour tortilla. Better luck for the Tortilla Tournament of Champions. And so, I mean, that's really the criteria. It has to be a great tortilla. And anyone could be a tortilla judge, sure. But it takes a while to really refine that palate. And I sound so pretentious, but it's real. So I am a pizza fanatic. And uh, I... One bite pizza people reviews. Say, well, yeah, let's not go there, right? I, my pizza reviews usually take a few more, few more bites. Um, exactly, but exactly. I know what you mean in terms of like you can taste if you've had enough, you can taste all of the ingredients in that went into that tortilla. Like you can probably name them one by one based on the 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 way that the tortilla cooks, based on the way it looks, based on the way uh, it, it 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 tastes, the aftertaste, the, the 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 texture, all of that. So it makes complete sense. I I uh, I'm now gonna go out to my local Super A and and pick up all of the uh, different tortillas that they have on stock, and then go down to Home State, which is down the street, and compare. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I I'm excited for this now because it's it's opening a whole new universe. So Super A's corn tortillas are whatever. But their flour tortillas are awesome. They've made it twice last year. Now this year, they made it into the Suave 16. And you see their ingredients. And by the way, like, I, and this is the great thing about the tournament. Like, you never know who's going to win because every, like, it's like, you know, this, like, like that cliche in sports. You have to show up to play the game eventually. So, like, you could have this great tortilla or whatever. And then whoever made that particular batch, it could have sucked. And then you have an okay tortilla, but that one day that they made the batch, they rose up and they made the, you know, they, they made it. But there's some tortillas that keep coming up every single year. Like at this point, the only two tortillas to make it into the SO8s or eight finalists every single year are Taco Maria and Corn, which sadly, unless they come back, they're never going to come back again. And home state, they have made it into the SOA every single year. But going back to, and they're incredible tortillas. But going back to Super A, like, and that's one of the cool things, again, like just traveling all over Southern California, like you have your restaurants that make their own um, tortillas. You have your um, tortillerias that make their own tortillas. And then you have your small, you have your bigger supermarket chains, like your Northgate, your Vallartas, and Northgate, you know, sponsored full disclosure for the tortilla tournament this year. But I've been shopping there my entire life because they originated in Anaheim. So I, it's, it's a sponsor that I can wholeheartedly endorse. But um, you have these smaller supermarket chains that also make their own tortillas. So Rancho Grande out in the, in the Coachella Valley, they made it into the Suave 16 last year, not this year, but Super A. And I knew Super A had always made them. But then I'm like, okay, I, I got to taste them. So the secret ingredient for Super A's tortillas, they put sugar into their flour tortillas. Mm. So you'll taste them. And they have some other ingredients like, you know, don't use too many preservative folks. But the, the, the tortillas are not bitter at the end. Maybe it's the sugar that cuts it. But it is a good tortilla. I mean, we'll see how far they go this year. But for a small – I, I got to check my um, – <laughs> You know, I have to check my history books of the tortilla tournament, but I do believe that. No, no. Well, 
I think they're the only uh, supermarket chain to make the Suave 16 two years in a row. And not wow. that many uh, super, yeah, not that many supermarket chains have made it into the Suave 16 because it's hard. Like it's, and people assume like, oh, you know, handmade is always going to win. They've won most of the years, but last year, La Princesita for East LA, it was the first ever uh, manufactured tortilla. So they make thousands of tortillas a day and they make amazing corn tortillas. So they won the golden tortilla last year. Sadly, Fairly they lost good. this year though. They, they lost, though they're great, and they lost in the second round this year because that's how hard the tortilla tournament is, where there's never been a repeat winner. It's it's insane. It is absolutely insane. It's like it's hard to win March Madness twice. So this this uh, this exactly. makes exactly <laughs> now now uh, what I love about this is that it goes back to our conversation on listicles and food and and sort of uh, you know food journalism out there, and that's like I in this conversation alone, I've heard of like probably a dozen or two dozen spots I've never, ever heard of or read about whatsoever, right? I do feel like there is a tendency to just go back to the same places over and over again on these lists. I would have never known about that burrito shop in the in Redlands that you just mentioned, that you just mentioned. Patties, yeah. Or uh, patties or other spots like that, right? So I love this because it gives so many people, so many places, uh, you know, some time in the sun and you kind of realize, hey, it doesn't need to be on on a list in order for it to be good. Like you can go out there and try things for yourself sometimes as well. So I think this is really, you know, it's an inspirational thing. Yeah, no, I mean, and like Taco Madness is great. I, I you know, Birria Mania or whatever the hell they call it now. It's great. And this year we did, uh, we are going to have uh we're, we're gonna we're always creating more awards so finally we're gonna do a people's choice award it's called the bronze comal they're gonna get a small little bronze comal and that we're gonna open up to the public all right vote for your favorite only these 16 finalists because these are the tortillas we stand by but we're still gonna be the arbiters of whoever's gonna win the golden tortilla because you know that's our job to do so but yeah i mean and you know and so i know some people are already upset because i included both Tallulah's and taco maria in the tournament this year, even though they had closed by the time we started. And my reasoning for it is twofold. Number one is because when we start, I mean, we do the actual judging. We do like, God, I think it was like two months ago that we finalized everything just because there's all these different things that we need to work out. By, by the time that both of the restaurants closed, they had already, uh, they're already in the competition. And so I would have had to retcon all sorts of things that would have been too hard. That's number one. But the other thing is I want to teach a lesson to the public at large. It's like, look, I love telling everyone these are the good tortillerias to go to. These are good restaurants to go to. But go to them. If you don't go to them, what is the point of us writing about these places? So in addition to Tallulah's and Taco Maria closing, another great tortilla called El Burrito House in Bell, it also closed as well. People do not. I get it. You go to the same places. I go to a lot of the same places sometimes, but you should be pushing yourself to go patronize the people who are doing it right, the people who are doing it good, because these places, and I, and this is personal to me because being a food critic for so long, I have gotten to know some of our restaurateurs in Orange County a little bit better. Um, my wife owns her own market in Delhi in downtown Santana. So I know how important it is, especially for the places who don't have investors, how much every sale, every mention, every tag counts. And if, and so anytime one of these places closes, I feel defeated. That's like, you talked about imposter syndrome earlier. I get not insecurity, but it's just like, is anyone out there? Is anyone listening to me? 
why the hell am I doing this if you're not going to pay attention to what I have to say? It's a, it's upsetting. It really is. And and that's just me. Like, imagine the poor people who have to close their restaurants and the jobs lost. It's And especially in this day and age with things being as hard as they are, it's just terrible. Yeah, yeah. And the, you, we're seeing more and more and more restaurant closures announced every day it seems like yeah i don't i don't remember the the rate ever being so high and obviously there are a lot of factors at play with the with you know inflation and stuff like that but it's a great point people need to go out and eat and on that note i want to know where are you eating <laughs> these days what are you what are you liking what have you what have you really enjoyed lately where should people go where do you want people to go well, full disclosure, no, shameless self-promotion. Everyone should go to my wife's restaurant, Alta Baja Market. She sells, it's like, it's only open for breakfast and brunch. So great sandwiches, salads. She has one of the largest collections of Mexican wines, north and south of the border. So I'm eating there. And, and this is what I tell people. I'll tell people to meet me there. And it's not just to promote my wife's restaurant, but also because I love the food there. There's nothing sadder than you having a family member or a good friend having a restaurant and you have to patronize a place to be out of duty, and the food sucks. I had, we had a friend, uh, my, you know, me and my best cousin, the guys I grew up with. We had a friend who bought a Quiznos around the great, right before the Great Recession, and Quiznos sucks. And we made fun of him <laughs> for doing so, and he lost it within a year. And then poor guy had to declare bankruptcy, sold all this stuff. But to this day, we ridicule him, like, dude. Why did you buy a Quiznos? That was not going to work. And we, were, we only went there once to support you, but we were never going to go back there again. But I mean, other, like places that I love. If I'm in LA, uh, just uh, just this week, I went to Sonora Town. I love Sonora Town's food. I love there. I mean, I go to their uh, location in mid-city because there's better parking there than the one in the fashion district. But their coconut horchata is magnificent. They're they're. Everyone knows their, them for their tortillas, but their meat is so underrated, like their chorizo taco. Oh, my God. The, I actually got all uh, enchilado. I got all spicy because of the chorizo taco, so that's great. All day, baby, I love. It's very hard for me to get out there, but Leanne, who was on your podcast recently, she's incredible, all the stuff that she's doing with all these other women restaurateurs, but her food, the food that they make there is incredible. I got to... I, you know what? Well, I'll hit you up afterwards, but we got to go to trivia night because I love trivia. I want to see how I would do. I know the Georgian dumplings got you. I could have, maybe I could have helped you on that one. I can't remember. You were, I, I'm assuming, dude, I, it is so much fun, especially for people like, you know, sick, twisted people like you and I, uh, who spend way too much uh, time invested in reading about this stuff and, and, and consuming this kind of stuff. Sure. It is, it is a, Addicting, and I have not won yet, so I will absolutely take you up. You got to come help me build that super team. Tag team, man. So all day, baby. Gelaguetza, of course. I mean, the Lopez family, they've done so much. My wife stocks their moles and their I love michelada mix. But like all, always a great time at Gelaguetza. If I'm in mid, if, if I'm in Koreatown, I'll go there. Um, Thai food, Ren Par, uh, Ren Pear. I always call it Par, par Pear. I've been going there since I was going to Rock and Espanol shows back in the early 2000s. But also, I like Lucy's Drive-In right off of what? La Brea near San Vicente. A, just a simple chile relleno burrito. Wash it down with orange bang. What else do you need in this world? Little. But I mean, I, and of course, and, and I'll give shout outs to places in Orange County as well. Um, Old Vine Cafe in Costa Mesa. Mark there has been there. For I mean, I was there day my wife and I were there day one. So I think a good 14 years, uh, great Italian food with cocktails. 
Mercado Modern Cuisine for uh, Alta California Cuisine, not too far away from Alta Baja Market. Kareem's Falafels, best falafels in the universe. They're in Anacrime. Um, anything in Little Arabia, they're all amazing places right there. But I got to say, sort of my deathbed meal, and I wrote about this for the listicle, uh, the anti-Disneyland listicle for the LA Times, just a teriyaki bowl from Moss 2, right down the street from Anaheim, washed down with the horchata. That is comfort food, bar none. And nothing against all the great restaurateurs in Southern California, but if I were to die and I needed a restaurant meal after my wife, that's going to be my dessert. I would not have called that in a million years, so uh, <laughs> uh, good to know. Gustavo, I just want to say thank you for gracing our podcast with your humor, your great stories, uh, all of your recommendations. Where can listeners find you if they're looking for you? Honestly, the easiest place nowadays is sign up for my newsletter. It's free. It comes out every Saturday. So go to my website, gustavoariano.org. I do just a you know quick sort of letter, whatever I'm thinking about, whatever. Then I link up to all the stories that I wrote all the places where I got quoted or appeared on. So obviously this podcast will be on the, on the next newsletter I write. I'll do a song of the, re of the week, a quote of the week. I'll do a picture of my food adventures because social media, we all know it's a garbage dumpster now. So like you could follow me on Twitter. I mean, if you want to, if you want parody Gustavo, that's Twitter where half of the stuff is me saying in and out is overrated and no one eats low quats. So you could find me there <laughs> or, you know, and I'm uh, I know people have an issue with that. I'll stay there until the very end. But Instagram, I barely do anything anymore. Facebook, I barely do anything anymore because it's related to Instagram. TikTok, maybe one day I'll do it. But honestly, like I, I really like my newsletter. That's where I'm able to be me. So just go to gustavoariano.org. And then at that point, if you want to follow me in other places, you can. But that's the one that is guaranteed, unfiltered, everything for the past week, Gustavo. We'll put it in the show notes. Gustavo, I guess I'll see you at, at Trivia Night at All Day Baby then. Oh, my God. Yeah, no, I, I'm serious. I'm going to email you after this. We'll figure out a date and time to do it because that'll get me up there just to eat at All Day Baby and also get me in trivia because I love trivia. We'll be the tag team, the, the Wonder Twins. Look out, Leanne. We're coming for you. Thanks, Gustavo. <laughs> Take care. Have Take a care, great man. afternoon. Thanks for listening to another episode of the LA Food Podcast. Thanks to our guest, Gustavo Arellano. I don't know about you, dear listener, but I know where I'm going to be on October 8th, and that's at Smorgasburg to take in the final of the Great Tortilla Tournament. I can't wait. If you like what you heard today, please go to wherever you listen to podcasts, leave us a rating, a review, and subscribe if you should be so inclined. Seriously, it turns out all that stuff really helps us, so if you do have a moment to just go on there leave us some nice words even just five stars four stars hell i'll take three stars i would be really appreciative so thank you for doing that and if you're looking for me in the meantime you can find me on instagram tiktok and threads at the la countdown that's t-h-e-l-a-c-o-u-n-t-d-o-w-n and you can also find me on instagram at la food pod that's l-a-f-o-o-d p-o-d we'll be back next week